Our reading this morning as we continue to study the Gospel of Mark comes from Mark chapter 5. If you're using the Bible that's in the pew, it's a navy blue book. It's on page 840. This is the most dramatic and detailed exorcism in the whole of the New Testament. And uh, it's pretty wild, okay? So uh, let's strap it on here. Mark 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. This means from the east side to the... I mean, from the west side of the sea to the west, uh, east side. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us into the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away. And began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. That's the reading of God's word. Let's pray again. Lord, do, as Jacob has prayed, do show us Jesus, Lord. Uh, Reveal his glory, his strength, his goodness, his wonderful suitability as our king and precious savior. O Lord, teach us by your Spirit. Amen. 
There's one movie uh, I remember as the scariest movie I ever saw as a kid. And I saw it a, a couple of times. Uh, the book was written by uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, one of the uh, Sherlock Holmes volumes. It came out in 1902, and kids, I read it right when it came out uh, in 1902. <laughs> That's how old I am, you were wondering. <clears throat> But I did see the movie as a young guy, and, and it really was the scariest thing I'd ever seen. This is what would happen several times in the movie. Some poor soul is on the moor at night. Of course, you're thinking, don't go out at night, you know, but they always do. And um, so they're on the moor, and then you, they're, they're walking along, and then you hear in the distance, oh, and I mean... I would get chill bumps because I'd seen the movie before and I knew what that meant. So they get this scared look on their face. They start running. They start looking around them. They're running faster and faster. And then suddenly they stop and you hear the growl of the dog. Just, then I'm really scared. And then, of course, thankfully, it didn't show them being torn limb from limb um, in front of my poor eyes. But then later they discover the dead body, you know, what had happened. But it was always hearing that long, horrible howl that would just send chills down my spine, knowing what was going to happen. You are a dead meat, I would say. Um, The hound of the Baskervilles. But imagine, so you and a friend are going home, and for some reason you have to take the route by the sea that route that leads by the tombs that you don't like to go by. And so you're walking along and suddenly you hear in the distance, way deep in the tombs, this blood-curdling scream. And you don't know what in the world. You start hurrying your pace. You start running faster. Then rocks start sliding and suddenly here's a guy that's naked and bloody in front of you. And suddenly you're on the ground being beat to a pulp He's off, he's shrieking in the night, and you stumble into the village, you know, bruised and busted and bloody. The man of the garrisons, right? Just like that hound terrorized the moor, he terrorized the countryside in that day. He wore no no clothes, he had no home, and under this demonic oppression... He had been driven out of society, living among the tombs. This symbolized his own spiritual and moral and relational uh, death. He was dead too. This, this just represented his death. He was a walking dead man, always crying out, it says. Always, all day, all night crying out on the mountains, screaming in the tombs. And in self-hate and despair, he lacerated himself, he mutilated himself with sharp rocks. His, his naked body likely suffered uh, disease and infection and fever. He was never really awake, he was never really asleep. You can imagine running and screaming as I would do many times in my dreams, trying to get away from something. But here, here, this is not a dream. It's real. And he's trying to get away from the monsters. But they are inside of him. Horrific torture that the unclean spirit was bringing upon him. Slowly, steadily, painfully destroying him. 
And as it says, they had put his hands and feet in chains. But the words that Mark uses indicate that he shredded the chains and he tore the shackles into pieces. He was like this uh, enraged Superman terrorizing the countryside. Nobody could control him. He couldn't control himself. And Matthew says that nobody could even pass by that place anymore. It had indeed become a dangerous neighborhood. And so that day when Jesus stepped onto the land, Jesus himself manifested his power because even his, his powerful presence, because even from a distance, the guy saw him and started running in desperation to Jesus, falling down before him and beginning to plead with him because we're told that Jesus was commanding the unclean spirit to leave him. And through the man, the demon yells out, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Which basically means, what do you want with me? Why are you here? Why are you interfering? He cries out his name, son of the most high God. That was not a worshipful confession. Okay, It was like magic. Uh, The idea of the day is that if you could speak the exact name of your enemy, then you could gain mastery over him. And so this was his desperate attempt to exactly describe him and call him by name so that he could defend himself against uh, Jesus. It's like this magic word that would disarm your, your enemy, like a verbal roping of your opponent. And then, ironically, the unclean spirit commands Jesus by God not to torment him. He's basically saying, may God's power protect me from you. And of course, it has no effect because as Mark began his gospel, Jesus is the son of God himself. Kind of think of God saying, now let me get this straight. You want me to protect you from my son whom I've sent to destroy you? Yeah, that's not going to happen, right? So Jesus elicits the name from him, Legion. And as you may know, Legion was the largest division of the Roman army, 6,000 or so strong. And in this case, it just meant a lot, right? A host of demons. He was infected with demons like a sewer with cockroaches. His body was a place where demons swarmed. But the word basically means, too, that uh, he was... uh, that they formed this large body of troops, you see, that were organized and acting in concert. So that Jesus doesn't just confront one demon, but he confronts an army of demons. And we're to get the feel of the power, kind of majesty of this indwelling and these demons. But still, it's no contest, right? The army doesn't have a chance. And the description of pigs in the area indicate that it was a Gentile area. And we know that this was heavily populated and colonized by the Romans on that side of the Sea of Galilee. And these pigs were used, of course, for food, but they also used for pagan sacrifices. But you notice the demons ask permission to go to the pigs. Permission. They recognize that Jesus is Lord. They acknowledge it. Mark is proclaiming Jesus' lordship in the story, his lordship even over demonic forces. And it's not as though Jesus is showing mercy to the pigs, you know, 
patting them on the head, and, okay, y'all go get your pigs, you know, that kind of thing. Um, as they inhabit the pigs and they rush and, and plunge into the sea, there's no indication that the uh, demons escape. The idea is that they have to go into the water with the pigs, that they're banished into the sea. In the common literature, that's the worst place a demon wanted to be. He'd be anywhere but didn't want to be cast into the sea. And uh, I would call in a dead pig at the bottom of the sea not the best place in the world. But you see, this is to indicate his absolute power, his absolute authority to send them wherever he wants, however he wants. And whereas the Egyptian magicians would use all of these kind of magic formulas to try to control and, and, and get to evil forces, Jesus basically says, out. That's it. It's a creative word. It's a sovereign word. It's the word of a Lord that just, just, that just executes his will uh, and power. And some people ask about the the animals. What about these poor pigs? And I know we all maybe have a little uh, thought. Maybe you don't. Maybe you, <laughs> you've, you've driven by a pig farm and you say, I wish they were all dead, you know, because that smells so terrible. <clears throat> but several have pointed out here that Jesus is more concerned about the restoration of this one man than he is 2,000 pigs, okay? That's one thing we get because Jesus never mentions the pigs or apologizes or anything. Mark doesn't mention it. It's like, this isn't important. Here's what's important. This man was delivered from these demons. That's what you better get from this. They are saying to us. So then the herdsmen report what happened. Everybody from the surrounding area uh, gets there. They see this man whom they recognize is the man who had lived and screamed and raged in the tombs. This man that no one could control is now sitting calmly at the feet of Jesus. He's in his right mind. He's stable. He's thinking straight. He's wearing clothes. How in the world? There, his presence there calmly in the, at the feet of Jesus is the great sign of Jesus' power. When all of the countryside, everybody together couldn't control this man who is being tormented by these demons. And most commentators point out the fact that the calming of the sea immediately preceded this exorcism of the demons. So that, uh, th- that, that account ended, the last verse in chapter 4, with this question from the disciples, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him. Who is this? And then Mark goes from that to showing how he, he could put it, calms this agonizing storm in this man's heart and brings him to, at peace as, as he did the sea. And again, we're to wonder, the wind and the sea obey him and the demonic forces obey him? Who is this? That's the question that comes before us. Who is this? And especially, how are you, how am I going to respond to this Lord, this uh, one of such authority? This one who said, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom has come. 
Kingdom basically means God's kingship is here and now. It's happening. And he is exercising that kingship. One of the marvelous things about this passage is that as in the healings, so in the exorcisms, these are a little taste of what we can expect in the final removal of all disease and all evil in this world one day. It will be as sovereignly done as this was. So that the curse is completely removed from this earth. All evil and demonic influence is removed from this earth. We are set free from our sins. And we enter into the new heavens and the new earth. Clean and free and strong and good by God's grace with new bodies. There's something of that here. Of this promise of what is coming. Because here you're seeing a little microcosm of this kingdom. A little show. A little a little brief glance at the power of this kingdom that one day will sweep the whole earth uh, through Jesus' coming. And it's an indication of the ongoing power of this kingdom to affect people's lives, including your life and my life. And there we ask the question, how am I being affected by this king? What is my response to what this king reveals himself to be in, in this passage? And first we can ask, well, what do these people, how did these people react to him? You would think, you would think that they would worship Jesus, that they would praise him, that they would thank him, that they would adore him, that they would want to follow him. This mighty king who came and did this thing that nobody else could do. But no, when they hear about everything that happened, including the pigs, and maybe especially the pigs, they beg Jesus to leave. They don't want anything. They, they want nothing to do with him. They refuse him. They like their life the way it is. They'd rather have their pigs and their regular life than Jesus. And so, salvation passed them by and Jesus leaves. And this reminds me, of the Israelites after God had sprung them loose from Egypt into the desert, which was really a a, a place, as the prophets say, of kind of honeymoon retreat, right? God with his new bride getting to be alone in the desert. Like they didn't even have to grow their own food, right? It's on the ground. You pick it up in the morning and you eat it. It's it's the manna. And so this was a time of Wonderful, amazing intimacy with God. And yet we read that they didn't care for their new prince. That they wanted to go back to their former life of slavery. They wanted to be slaves in Egypt rather than free with God. You think, how badly could you despise God? And that's what God said in Numbers 14. When they wouldn't enter the land itself. He says, how long will these people, this people despise me? How long will they not trust me in spite of all I have done for them? I mean, it's it's really like Cinderella just abandoning her new prince and deciding, you know, I think I'm going to go back and be an abused servant of my evil stepmother and stepsisters. That's us. That's us deciding that I don't think I'm going to give myself to this God. I don't think I'm going to 
give myself to this Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, these people could have had Jesus. They could have, like Israel, you could have had God. You could have had Jesus, but you chose to continue your own spiritual slavery, your life without God. It's ironic that these people were the seemingly healthy, normal ones, and he was the ravaged, broken one, and yet look at their condition at the end. Who's the rescued one? Who is calm and at peace with God? It's this one who was so broken. They refused to be rescued, even though they needed it. But they didn't realize they needed it. Which reminds me of what Jesus said a few chapters earlier, chapter 2. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And of course, he didn't mean that some people really were well. But some people don't know they're sick, don't think they're sick. They can't believe they're sick. And so, I don't need a physician. I don't, why would I need a savior? Why would I need somebody to rescue me? I don't need that. And so, they're well enough. They don't need Jesus. And I want to ask you, has this been your response to, to Christ, to Jesus? Have you basically kept him at arm's length and like depended on your own righteousness or depended on your own strength or want to keep God at a distance because you're not sure what he might do with your life? You're suspicious of his intentions of your life. Don't want to entrust yourself to him. Don't see your, your need of him. Uh, I want us to see that this is not just, this, this event is not just an abstract showing of his power so that you say, wow, he, he's a strong, you know, divine being. But this is a picture of his rescue of his people. This is a picture, uh, a proclamation that Mark is making to you and me of this Lord Jesus and what he can do for us. You might scratch your head and say, I don't think I'm possessed by demons. You know, so you tend to separate yourself from this and think, this doesn't have anything to do with me. But the Bible it takes a lot of time to teach that we all, all of us, have basically been manhandled by Satan and his legions spiritually. That when Adam and Eve abandoned their trust in God necessarily they walked into the arms of Satan. There's no other choice. We're not independently strong beings as human beings. We're gonna, we have to belong to something. We have to depend on something. We have to follow something. We're in one spiritual world or the other spiritual world. There's no other choice for us. And so to turn away from God... And his word is to entrust oneself to Satan and his word, his dominion. We have entrusted ourselves into this tyranny of Satan. And it's not as obvious as the man in the tombs. Satan's original temptation was simply this. You can't trust God to shoot straight with you. 
You can't trust God to do you good. And if you want to be happy, you have to run your life like you want to run it, not how he wants you to run it. And so, all Satan wants from you is to do your own thing. Do your own will. And if you'll do that, then you're in Satan's camp. Because that's what he wants from you. Do your will like he's doing his will. Be a follower of Satan in rebelling against the will of God. And all Satan wants from you is basically to be controlled by something other than God. Maybe money, maybe pleasure, maybe work, maybe entertainment, maybe being busy, maybe being successful, maybe being organized, as a friend of mine used to say, and together, having the right friends, knowing the right people. Maybe it's fear, anxiety, despair, anger. His tools are legion. He'll put anything forward for that to be the dominating force in your life, the most important thing, what you're controlled by. And we don't know where the, we don't know where the thread leads in our disobedience. We just think it's us. Just me against God, maybe. We don't know where the thread leads. Just like the uh, worshipers of idols uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul's talking about the food that pagans offer to their idols. And Joe Pagan would say to you, well, I worship so-and-so idol and I worship... These are their names. These are my ten that I worship. They would name them. But Paul says this, what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. So all idolatry is a front for demonic attention, honor, and worship. And I would say all rebellion against God, that is life rebellion against God, is a front for demonic honor. That's what the Bible teaches us. It's, it's shocking what is said. Jesus said to the hypocritical religious leaders of his day, and this was not a nice thing to say, so... You forget the idea that Jesus is nice, right? You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. Father. Father. That indicates relationship, you see? That indicates connection. Belonging. And then he says, and this father of yours was a murderer from the beginning. He's a liar He's the father of lies. And that's the great tragedy that when we turn away from God's love and his gracious leading of our lives, we put ourselves under the tyranny of one who Jesus says, this is a murderer and everything he does will be a lie and deception to destroy you. It's so hard, isn't it? It's so hard to... To maintain the sense of where the threads of disobedience lead. What evil is connected to. We tend to deny it. And so Jesus, John writes, came. And this is wonderful. The reason the Son of God appeared. All right. Here's here's one one way to look at the whole salvation of Christ. 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was this, to destroy the works of the devil. 
So from one perspective, that covers everything. Okay? That covers everything. Whatever salvation was, it was the destruction of the works of the devil. So that Jesus could say on the eve of his death in John 12, now the God of this world, who's calling Satan, little g, but he's the power over the world of people that rebel against God. The God of this world is cast out. So Jesus saw his death as that great event where the God of this world, here it comes, he's now going to be cast out. There's that feel again, isn't it? This is what I came to do. I came to wipe him out. And brothers and sisters, again, in that final day, we'll see the completion of that work where he and everyone that belongs to him will be cast into the lake of fire in Revelation we read. And he will be utterly destroyed and evil will be removed from this earth. That's what Jesus came to do. And he has proclaimed to us as the one who will set us free from our sin and enslavement to sin. Because we, though we don't realize it, Paul says this in 2 Timothy chapter 2 when he's talking about someone coming to repentance. Okay? Just that simple thing. Maybe this, these people I'm talking about will come to repentance. But notice how he puts it. He just, this is the way Paul thinks. You, you realize. May they escape from the snare of the devil. Well, may God grant them repentance and they escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That's how Paul viewed it. May God grant them repentance so that no longer they will serve the will of Satan and be under his power. How glorious then that our Lord Jesus, to rescue us from this enemy, died for us. To rescue us from the clutches of Satan. Even though we had willingly departed and taken him as our false God. Though we had abandoned God and despised him just like the Israelites. For we ourselves would rather be slaves. would rather be anything and do anything than give ourselves to this God. And belong to him and love him. In the face of that... Jesus lays down his life for the sake of those despisers. Jesus lavishly spends himself for our sake. And it's put in these terms that have to do with the devil in Hebrews 2. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing. So his children, the ones he's going to redeem, have flesh and blood. He became flesh and blood, okay? Took flesh to himself. So that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And that's a big theme in this passage because he's so associated with the tombs. So you've got enslavement and death, enslavement and death. 
And here in Hebrews 2, he took upon himself flesh so that he might die on our behalf and set us free from the one who has the power of death. And this is why we say sometimes in shorthand that the whole gospel is uh, kill the dragon, get the girl. Kill the dragon, get the girl. And that's what Jesus came to do, to kill the dragon and get the girl, which is his people. And gather us and be with us forever and ever in an unending honeymoon. Kay and I had the most wonderful honeymoon way down at the end of uh, in, in Fort Lauderdale. And it was wonderful even though our car broke down and I had to get off her hometown of Louisville in a Greyhound bus. Okay, It was not great. But we always said, gosh, wouldn't it be great if this could just keep on going? And we read in heaven that. There's the marriage feast of the Lamb, and that heaven is described in those terms. It's, it's the bride that he spent his blood to get to rescue her from the dragon. That's what's pictured here so marvelously, so beautifully. In our enslavement, we don't know him, we don't trust him, we're not filled with his love, we don't know his embrace, we're running from him, we're hell-bent literally on running our own lives, and then that way we despise him. And so in, we're all this man, you see. We're all this man, helpless in our sin and enslavement. But the good news is, as Jesus said, when the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So whatever it is that you suffer, whatever pile of sin, whatever layers of sin, however long you've struggled with it. Hear this. He, he comes to a man helpless. Nothing could be done. He sets him free. This is a proclamation to you and to me. There is absolute hope for me. Even though I feel dead and stuck and concrete in my sin, he is a mighty Lord that will set me free. Nothing can, with, uh, can hold itself up under his on, onslaught. And so, by God's grace, we can not be the people, but we can be the man, right? We can be the man who showed his discipleship because he's at the feet of Jesus. And when he is leaving, here's the man that began in, as a demon-possessed man. I don't want you here. Get away from me. And now he's saying, I don't want you to leave. I want to be with you wherever you are. And, of course, Jesus sends him uh, back to his, his friends and, and territory to proclaim what God had done for, them, for him. Isn't it fascinating that the first missionary evangelist is this demon-possessed man? First one in Mark. Gentile being sent to the Gentiles to proclaim the goodness of Jesus Christ. And... That, by God's grace, can be you and me. And it depends on this. Do I see myself as helplessly lost and without hope except that this Jesus rescue me by dying for my sins, by suffering the wrath of God that I deserve and springing me loose from my death, from my enslavement to sin? Will I trust myself and trust myself to him Or will I refuse him? This passage sets Christ before you. And I I urge you, 
Rush to him, embrace him, love him, give yourself up to him, and be his servant forever. Let us pray. Lord, we have no hope but Christ, but what a hope we do have in him. That we, no matter how weak and helpless and frail and broken and lost and corrupted. And oh Lord, we're so corrupted. Jesus doesn't turn away from us, but he comes to us. He comes to us, the worst of us, to set us free, to release us from our bondage, to demonstrate his glorious love as the one who in hero style dies for his people. What a king to serve. What a king to belong to. Oh, Lord, show us Jesus. Show us, show us Jesus. Amen.